Please take your copy of God's Word at this time. As we come to the preaching of the Word and turn to Psalm 65. Psalm 65. In my preaching through the Psalter, I come now to the 65th Psalm. Hear the Word of the Lord. To the chief musician, a psalm and song of David. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. And he shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Amen. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. The psalm of David is written by him before the temple even stood. And it is likely that this psalm is written by David for a few reasons. And we're given some window into how and when the psalm is written. It's not a historical psalm as we understand them typically to be, where the superscript will give us some description about when the psalm is written, how it was written, what the circumstances are. But we are able to gauge, based on the words of the psalmist, some of that information. The church three times a year was to gather before the Lord, all of the males. We see this in Exodus 23, verses 14 to 17, and we see it again repeated in Deuteronomy. That there were three festivals that the Lord gave for the men to gather. You had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You had the Feast of Weeks, which came seven weeks after the Passover and first fruits. And you had the Feast of Tabernacles. This psalm, I believe, is written uh, for those purposes. And all throughout the year, the children of Israel had these festivals. They had times where they were commanded to come, particularly and especially appear before the Lord in the city that he had chosen. And in preparation for that, David writes this psalm. Now, the Lord did that. He condescends to them in the midst of their going through life. And the Lord condescends to us each Sabbath day in the midst of our life so that we're interrupted, as it were. You can imagine what your life would be like if you just went through living. And it's actually just a prolonged, um, drawn-out death, right? You're living to end up dying one day. But the Lord does something different for us. He interrupts us so that we're not just going through living each day until we die, but interrupting us so that we might give Him praise and remind us the reason why we were created, remind us the reason why we are here on this earth. And the Lord did the same for the children of Israel, where in the midst of things that were accordance with nature, in the midst of things that happened throughout their time in Israel, in Palestine, that they would have seed time, that they would have the early rains, the latter rains. They would have times of harvest. They would have times of letting the ground sit barren. And in the midst of these things, the Lord comes and especially 
calls upon them to have particular feasts that parallel those times. And so you would have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and First Fruits happening at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the same as the setting of the book of Ruth. You would have a period of time after Pentecost. You'd have seven weeks after the barley harvest of first fruits, and you would have Pentecost after that. And then there was this long period of about four months where there was nothing happening. And then at the end again, you would have in the seventh month three festivals all packed together. The beginning with the feast, the blowing of the trumpets, then the Day of Atonement, and then a week after that, you would have the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles. And the Lord so ordered this that at the beginning of the planting and the sowing and the harvesting, and at the end of the harvesting, when everything was brought in, that the people would appear before the Lord to offer Him the praise that was due His name. And David writes the psalm in preparation in the midst of these yearly festivals. Now, we are in the New Testament era. These yearly festivals that pointed forward to Christ and His work, we do not carry them through. They are fulfilled in Him. Nor do we take these festivals and somehow slam them into our worship and say they typify each portion of the worship. No, they're fulfilled in Christ and His work. And they are still, we see them in the Old Testament so that we may learn that Every day of our life, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, is to be lived to the glory of God. God interrupts His people throughout their life to know that He is to receive this praise. A couple notes about the psalm itself before we enter into the text. First, the placement of the psalm. We have Psalm 65. Look at the psalm that comes before. The entirety of the psalm that comes before, Psalm 64, is a prayer for God to hear the saint. It begins that way. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. And then it ends about the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him and all the upright in heart. So it does not end with the Lord answering that prayer. But it's an entire psalm about the prayer. And yet, how does Psalm 65 begin? Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. Unto thee shall the vow be performed. The prayer leads way to praise. Another thing to note about this psalm. Look at the superscript of the psalm. Psalm 65, to the chief musician, a psalm or song of David, praise waiteth for thee. Now, this is an interesting place in the Psalter. One of the occasions that we have where, if you look at the Greek, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is actually 64 in the Septuagint, they combine two psalms early on, and then they separate two psalms later on. So it's 64 in the enumeration there. But what you have there is very interesting. The word for psalm in the Greek is psalmos. The word for song is ode, and the word for praise is hymnos. And those of you that know what's coming next, because you're well versed in the understanding of us singing the psalms and singing them exclusively, know that those are the three words that the Apostle Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1 and 3 and Ephesians chapter 5 especially Colossians 3, verses 14 to 17, when he calls upon us to sing in psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. 
in both places. And that this is the wisdom of the words of Christ. And here, the Holy Spirit, uh, writing by David, gives us those three as well. Psalms, hymns, and songs. And it's noteworthy to say that any time that you see um, of spiritual reference in the Bible, that is of the Spirit, it's a genitive, it's a mark that is referring to something, that with respect to these things of a positive nature from the Lord, it refers to something that comes directly from God. And so you'll read in 1 Corinthians 10 about how the water from the rock and the manna was spiritual. It came directly from God. It's not like they came to a pool that was already there. The same with the Psalms. They come directly from the Spirit. And that is the reference that is given. A third thing before we enter in is the setting of the Psalm. I've alluded to it already in part that the Psalm itself is written for the festivals. But I believe that the setting that we have here before us is not just that David's writing this uh, in lieu of the Feast of Tabernacles, but of a particular instance that occurred in the history of Israel. The psalm speaks of the, the great blessing that the Lord gives. How all throughout their life, uh, as they sow and they reap, and the Lord brings in the bounty, David speaks in verse 3 of sins that need to be confessed. And oftentimes when the children of Israel sinned against the Lord, he would send a number of things that would uh, hinder their ability to bring in a good crop. He would send famine, and he would send pestilence, and he would send plague. He would send marauders in to destroy fields and to take away people. And it is likely that David pens this psalm after the incident in 2 Samuel 24. We have two instances in David's reign where the Lord sends judgment particularly upon the whole nation. In 2 Samuel 21, he sends famine because of what Saul had done to the Jebusites or the Gibeonites. And in 2 Samuel 24, we read of the plague that the Lord sent because of David numbering the people. And the plague is stayed at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. David took the city of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and calls it the city of David. And it's here at the threshing floor that God says to him, rear up an altar. And further revelation is given to David that this is the place where the temple would be established. And I believe that it's around that time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the same time that David numbered the people, the same time that the people would be finishing their harvest at the same time that David was repenting of the sin that he had committed and the angel of the Lord, Lord Sabaoth, Christ in a Christophetic form, coming before the people and staying his sword coming to Jerusalem. That David, in repentance and looking forward to the temple and the heavenly Zion above, pens this psalm for the people of God. So that after he's long gone, that every year, three times a year in fact, when the men would gather together in Solomon's temple, the preparation of which David had a large part in playing, that he, by the Spirit, pens a psalm in preparation of those things. And so it is that, beloved, when we sing the psalms, we are doing so in preparation 
of that great blessed day when we are gathered into the Lord's glory and sing before him without sin. And so with the Lord's help, as we look at the psalm of the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering him that tabernacled with us, we'll consider two things. First, that prayer gives way to the praise of God in verses 1 to 5. Prayer gives way to the praise of God. And then secondly, privileges given to the people of God in verses 2 to 13. Privileges given to the people of God in verses 2 to 13. You'll understand why those two overlap in a minute. First, prayer gives way to the praise of God, verses 1 to 5. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth, and of all them that are afar off upon the sea." The prayer that gives way to the praise of God. Notice how he begins. He says unto them, Unto thee shall the vow be performed. Now you know in your scriptures that there are two types of vows. There is the free will vow that if somebody vows something, if someone promises something, they were to pay it to the Lord. And the book of Ecclesiastes is quite clear that we are to pay our vows quickly. Because the Lord does not take lightly those that vow and do not repay. That it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay the Lord and to pay him back speedily. There, so there are those type of vows. And Numbers especially, Numbers 29 and 30, delineates what was to happen with these vows. And what would happen if one reneges these vows. Even a six-month-old child and what offering was demanded of a six-month-old child if they vowed something and it didn't come to pass. And this shows you how seriously the Lord takes his vows, that even one under a year old was still obligated to fulfill a vow, even one that could barely lisp and speak. But there was another type of vow, and that was a vow of covenant obligation that you and I share. That every Sabbath day we gather together and assemble as the people of God to offer Him the worship and praise that is due to Him. That as being covenant children of God, having been baptized, sprinkled with that baptism, being united visibly to Christ, we are under a vow to perform. The vow of worship. And the Lord here by David speaks of such things that unto thee the vow shall be performed. And so the prayer of the saint gives way to the praise, first in this vowing that it occurs. Grace obliges us to give thanks unto the Lord in praise. Remember Paul, in his second epistle to Timothy, speaks of the last days that would come, that we live in, which Paul lived in as well. 
It's not something far off waiting for after the tribulation. No, we're in the last days right now. And he notes that one of the things that marks the last days is ingratitude. Ungrateful to parents. A lack of thanksgiving. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. One of the things that marks a dull, cold church to the Lord is a lack of praise. A lack of thanksgiving. How many churches actually sing the psalms still? Most are songs after their own imagination. And yet the Lord commands that we are to praise Him, that we are to pay our vows. The church is obligated by covenant to sing the psalms. And yet many do not. And many offer whatever they please. And there is a lack of thanksgiving there. And you can have this uh, same understanding with your own children. You tell your child to go clean their room and then come back and tell you when they are done or mow the lawn. And instead of doing that, they do something else that they want to do. And they come trotting over to you and they say, hey, I, I went ahead and I uh, washed the dishes. Like, well, I didn't tell you to do that. I told you to go mow the lawn or I told you to go clean your room. That is what you were supposed to do. And you disobeyed me. Well, I did this over here. It's productive. Mm -mm. And there's a lack of gratitude for the father bearing the house or the mother keeping the home. Because there was a command to be done and there was not a vow that was paid. There was not that obligation seen. It was, I can make the vow whatever I want, but that is not so with the Lord. A prayer that we give must give way to praise. We must praise the Lord the way that He commands us. The Lord commands us to bless Him and to perform that which He has given to us. The prayer also speaks of the Lord that hears. Verse 2. O thou that hearest prayer unto thee shall all flesh come. The gathering and the assembling of the people. We spoke about how the psalm uh, addresses those three uh, festivals that the men would come to every year. And here, uh, the Lord is the one that hears prayer. Praying that God would hear prayer. Do you do such, beloved? When you're praying to the Lord, do you pray that He would hear your prayers? And this was the attitude of Hagar, even in her estate, that she said, Thou God seest me. That he was Jehovah Jireh, the God that would see to it, is what Abraham said. Why? Because there was a prayer set forth that the Lord would hear the prayers of his saints. And so it is. Maybe you feel like uh, you're not getting anywhere in your prayer life. Maybe it's because you're just going through the motions. Perhaps you need to consider, are you praying that the Lord would hear your prayers? Are you asking the Lord, hear my prayers, O Lord, and not merely just going through the motions, but asking the Lord that He would take hold. Why? Because He is the God who hears. And after He responds to your prayers, after He answers them, how should you respond? Your prayer ought to give way to praise. Prayer always begets praise. It always must, beloved. And think of the apostle and Silas sitting there in the prison of Philippi. What are they doing? It says that while they prayed, they praised. That in praying, they praised. They're praying for the Lord to deliver them. And He does so. 
but their prayer gives way to praise. They're praying to the God that would hear them. We see also, beloved, He is the God that forgives sin. Our prayer gives way to praise because He is a God that forgives sin. Verse 2, Iniquities prevail against me. And some will say, well, that, this is just speaking about difficulties. And some of you have a note that says that matters of iniquities, difficulties that happen in this life, uh, an idea that I'm getting pressed on every side, the bulls of Bashan are pushing against me. But David clarifies, he notes it in the parallel of the verse and says, as for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. The iniquities being spoken of aren't the pressures from outside, but rather the indwelling sin that we have. That the Lord will save us from such sin. And that we ought to pray to the Lord to forgive us of our sins. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And what a blessing it is, beloved, that we don't have to go to someone else to act as a mediator on our behalf. Now, Rome teaches that abhorred doctrine that you need to go to a priest, you need to go to someone else. You can't go directly to Christ, except in extreme circumstances. And such is not what the Bible teaches. Christ is the mediator. Christ this very morning sits in his session beside the Father. He is seated beside the right hand of the Father and he is interceding in our behalf. When the accuser of the brethren, Satan, comes before the Father and points at us and our failings, Christ intercedes on our behalf. He says, they are mine. I have bought them with my blood. What a blessing that is. But this is the prayer that we ought to offer. We should not think, well, because the Lord is interceding for us, we do not need to intercede on our behalf. That is not the case. We need to confess our sins. We are told by John in his first epistle that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A beauty of the prayer that we have that leads to praise. Verses 4 and 5. Blessed is the man that thou choosest and causeth to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. He shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. By terrible things and righteousness wilt thou answer us. Praise needs to be peppered in our prayers. Our prayer needs to be not self-centered. How often... Do we pray for things just because we want them and not because they seek to enable the kingdom of Christ to go forth, to grow? What does the Lord say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That doesn't mean plague Christ's game and he'll give you your best life now. That's not what's being addressed. But rather, in seeking the things of Christ and having a heart like David that sought after the Lord, your desires are His desires. There's a change of the heart there, right? And so, as children, you can think, what did you want as a child? It could have been a new toy. You get into your teen years. Uh, I'd like to have a hot rod car that's really sweet. Give me those cool clothes. You get to be an adult, a status symbol, a particular job. But what does the Lord say that we are to pray for? 
the things that are after his will. And so we pray everything, Lord, if it be your will, let this come to pass. We shouldn't ask for anything if it does not advance the kingdom of God. Are you sick? Are you frail? Why are you asking for the Lord to heal you? Is it so that you could better serve him in his kingdom? Or is it because you want to model your new body that is stronger and better than everybody else's? There's a big difference there in our prayers. Do we pray with a mindset to the kingdom of God? Do we pray to see that the things that we are requesting of God would advance His kingdom? For Christ's crown and covenant, is that what we desire? Or is it our own little personal fiefdom? Just our best life now. Just what we have here to get by in life. Again, beloved, this psalm is written by David in preparation for the building of the temple. It's written with a mind of the festivals that Israel would have had. Where God interrupts their life providentially. And says, I know that you're in the middle of harvesting. Guess what? That first fruit, that's mine. You bring it to me. And seven weeks later, you appear to me again. Why? It's a reminder. It's a reminder that in the midst of all that's going on with the harvesting and the growing of the fruit, that I'm the one sustaining you. The Lord promises, in the midst of all that, when you come to me in Jerusalem, I will grant you peace and safety. You won't have to worry about wild beasts. You won't have to worry about war. People will not take advantage of you. If you are faithful to me, I will put a hedge of protection around you so that you can come to me and offer the praise that is due to me. And then the Lord gives a respite for four months. And the seventh month comes when everything is harvested in. And he has a blowing of the trumpets. The day of atonement. But it wasn't those first two that the people had to show up at. It was only the Feast of Tabernacles. The very last feast of the year that they had to show up. Now, if you love the things of the Lord, you might be able to so order your life and say, wife, children, this is what's going to happen. Even though the Feast of uh, Tabernacles is near the middle to the end of the month, we're going to spend the entire month in Jerusalem. I want you to see the blowing of the trumpets with the priests. I want you to be there when the high priest goes once a year into the Holy of Holies and offers the atonement for the people of God, for the iniquities that we bear. I want you to be there for the Feast of Tabernacles as we cut off boughs from the trees out in the yard and we make ourselves a makeshift tent and we live in it for a week, remembering how the Lord preserved us in the wilderness till he brought us into the promised land. What beauty the Lord gives to us. He gave to the Old Testament church and it was very difficult for them to bear. The Nehemiah passage that I referenced. Nehemiah has the parallel to Ezra 3 in Nehemiah 7. And there Nehemiah notes that this feast was not kept properly since the days of Joshua to that day. People may have gathered, but the fervency to it, all that was dedicated to it, going out and cutting the bows and making the tents, they didn't do it. That's a long time to not follow the word of the Lord. That's a long time to not keep his festival as he commanded. And yet the people were so glad they had returned from exile that they had given themselves more 
to fulfilling what God had commanded in his feasts than previous generations had. And consider that. The children of Israel come out of Egypt. Moses, before he goes to Egypt with the Exodus, is met by God in an inn because he did not circumcise his son. And God almost kills him. The children of Israel come out of Egypt and they don't circumcise their kids. The 40 years in the wilderness, they don't circumcise their kids because they're under the ban. And Joshua is the one that rolls away the reproach of Egypt when they cross the Jordan and they are uh, circumcised there in the heap with flinty stones. And so it is that latter generations will often come along and worship God with a greater reverence, a greater tenacity, a greater love than previous generations that came before. We ought to pray for such things. And this is what the psalmist speaks of. These terrible things and the righteousness of God, he will answer. O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of them that are afar off upon the sea. Interesting that he brings in the Gentiles, isn't it? The Gentiles coming in with the praise. David didn't live to see that day. He did see some of it. He had friendship with Hiram, king of Tyre. And Hiram saw the godliness of David, and it rubbed off on him. And he wanted to see the temple built in Jerusalem. And so he gives them all the cedar trees from Lebanon. He gives them all the workmen that he could muster. But here's the sad thing. It's the sin of Solomon in the end of his life that causes Hiram's children to forsake God, to despise the things of God, to blaspheme the God of Jacob, of Abraham, of Isaac. And it's because of that that a northern king one day marries a woman from Zidon named Jezebel, who has a daughter named Athaliah, who almost destroys the entire Davidic line. You see, beloved, God takes his praise seriously. When we forsake such things, it often comes back to bite us. It comes back to chasten us. Our prayer must be peppered with the praise of God. Our prayer needs to give way to the praise of God. You see, beloved, how briefly in this chapter, this psalm that's laid before us, it's 13 verses, we're to verse 5, and the prayer portion is ended. By comparison... The prayer that is offered is very small compared to the privileges that God has offered. We've already seen some of them. We'll go over them again. That's why uh, the second point covers from verse 2 to the end. The privileges of God so outnumber our prayer and praise. We should repent of such things. And some of it is our frame, and the Lord understands that. Eat, sleep, work. My sleep for six to eight hours. A quarter of your day is spent in sleeping. A quarter of your day is spent not praising the Lord, but sleeping. And yet the Lord is still giving you privileges and sustaining you in the midst of your sleep. Let us look to the privileges given to the people of God. Verses 2 to the end. They are enumerated and they are enduring. There are nine privileges that David writes here for the people of God. Nine privileges for them to know and to remember. The first one is in verse 2. 
that God hears prayer. We spoke of this in the previous point. How it is that we are to pray to the God that hears. But here, note, David calls him the God who hears. In the Hebrew it is literally, O hearing one of prayer. It declares the name of God. O hearing one of prayer. Remember this was what Elisha or Elijah brings up at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. What's wrong with Baal? Why isn't he answering you? Why isn't fire coming down from heaven? Is he on a journey? Is he sleeping? Is he using the restroom? Who knows what he's doing? But Elijah, after all that's done, douses his sacrifice so that the trough around it is full. And he prays to the God who hears. The same God who he said to Ahab, Water will stop dropping to the earth until I say otherwise. The former and the latter reigns. The blessing given by God. Why? Because Elijah, by faith, prayed to the Lord, the God who hears. And perhaps he has the psalm in mind. What kind of blessing and benefit are you bringing in? What kind of harvest do you bring in if for several years there's no rain? What you have is in the streams, and then you have to drag it over to your fields or in your wells, and then that eventually dries up in the middle of the famine. And yet the Lord sustains Elijah through the entirety of it. And he goes out and meets Ahab at Carmel with that contest against Baal. And he prays to the God of heaven again, the God who hears prayer. And he asks the Lord to send down fire from heaven, and then to bring rain. And he does. And the rain that is brought is not brought during the former or the latter rains. It's brought when it should not happen. And that's important, beloved. He is the God who hears prayer. He often answers prayer, not according to our own timetable, not when we expect it, but he answers prayer when it is best to his honor and glory. When he receives the glory the most is when he answers that prayer. And we should be mindful of that. Oftentimes, again, us focused, me centered, our prayer life is often that. It doesn't have the kingdom of God central. It doesn't have Christ's glory central. But God, when he answers prayer, answers it with his glory in mind. Even when he answered the prayer of the children of Israel to give them quail, which was a judgment upon them, it was so that he would fetch glory for himself. Because the people so detested it after that point and were so judged that they didn't ask again for quail. They were one and done. He is the God who hears. This is the first of nine of the privileges that give, is given. You understand that? God hears the prayers of his people. You little children, God hears your prayers. When mommy and daddy at night are praying with you before you lay your head down on the pillow. It's not simply because, that. well, that's what we do at night. It's because God hears the prayers. You're out on the playground. You're with your brother and sister. Something bad happens. You get hurt. You can pray to God, and he will hear you. God hears the prayers of his people. 
The second privilege is a pardon for sin. We saw this in verse 3. David alluding to the Day of Atonement. The sin that he had, where he numbers the people, and the Lord coming during that time at the end of the harvesting at Ornan's field was around the time of the Day of Atonement. I don't know if it was the same day. But it is about that time. It's in the seventh month that all of this is happening. And David has that in mind. Because what was the Day of Atonement for? It was for the purging of the sins of the people. The atoning of the sins of the people. Not a high-handed sins. There was no atonement for that. But for sins that were done without thought. Sins that were done that weren't even known. You would have the Day of Atonement. And even though the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin, this was a symbol, it was a type of that which was placed on Christ and taken away. So that you would have one goat that was slain and the scapegoat. That the priest would say all the sins of the people and he would walk into the wilderness never to return again. Demonstrating that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He is the God that pardons sins for his people. And maybe you sit here this morning and you are riddled about with a besetting sin. With a sin that you can't seem to shake. It could be lying. It could be lust. It could be theft. It could be any of a number of things. It could be hatred. Murder in your heart of your brethren. And you have a besetting sin. It keeps coming after you. You see what David says. The language that he uses. He says prevail against me. These prevailing sins that often Christians have in their life. Know, beloved, that the Lord will answer your prayer. To seek Him. Think of the Apostle Paul who did not sin per se, but the Lord sends a messenger of Satan to buffet him. What does the Lord say? My grace is sufficient. He also tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that he will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. And there's no temptation that is common to man, uncommon to man. That the temptations that we face, everybody has faced. And the temptations that Christ faced, even though he was not possible for him to sin, posse non pecari, not possible, non posse pecari, not possible to sin that he still faced temptations that were greater than what we face against the devil. And because of that, he is able to condescend to us. He's able to sympathize with us so that when we go to Christ and we have a besetting sin, we can go to him and say, Christ, you saved me from sin. And yet, I'm afflicted with lying. And yet, I'm afflicted with stealing. And yet, I'm afflicted with this over here. Will you not release me from the sin? And the Lord, to His glory, will do such. Pardon for sins that occur. The Lord gives great blessing in such things. Ezra chapter 3 in our reading, you might have caught on a mentioning of one of the Psalms, Psalm 136. It's the Psalm that has the refrain that we sing in the Psalter. One of the Psalms that has a divine refrain. Give thanks unto God, 
the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. It's one of the beloved psalms that we sing. How his mercy endureth forever. You are beset with sin. One of your privileges is to go to the Savior who pardons sins. The one whose mercy endures forever. And to ask for healing from that sin with the stripes that he suffered on the cross. The third privilege that we see is in verse 4. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest to approach unto thee that thou he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. We have the gracious purpose in the decree of election presented here. This is one of the privileges of God's people. It's that gracious purpose of election. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest. Ultimately, this is speaking of Christ. Just as Psalm 1, that man hath perfect blessedness who walketh not astray. Adam in the garden walked astray. He listened to Satan, who was a scorner, a sinner, a smiter of God. And as a result, he did not get to partake of the tree of life. He withered and died. His dust is long gone in the earth, scattered abroad. But Christ is that one whom the Lord chose. He is the one that ascended up into heavenly Zion. He is the one seated at the right hand of God. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the only person to resurrect without seeing a second death and destruction of his body. He never even saw a destruction of his body the first time. And yet he was resurrected and is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's a gracious purpose in the decree of election. And Christ is the one chosen. But it's not just Christ for Christ's sake. Christ is chosen for the sake of his people. He came into the world to save his people from their sins. And so it is that he died for the sins of the elect, for the sins of his people. Read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 concerning our heritage. Why is it that God chose you? Why did God choose the church? Why did God choose the Jews? Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because ye were more in number than any other people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep an oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of the bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And repay them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. That is like the first commandment that we have with promise from the first table. Is it not? That God shows 
love and steadfast mercy to thousands that love him and keep his commandments. But repays back to the third and fourth generation. And God chose David from the sheepfold to lead Israel. Consider David's own heritage. Who did Boaz marry? Ruth, who was a Moabitess. Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. David's the fourth generation from Ruth. And he helps establish the temple. It's possible that Jesse and Obed were not able to come to the tabernacle because of the three-generation curse upon them for Moabites. It's possible. It may be that they said, well, because Ruth, like Rahab, has joined Israel, it's a different story. But if that's the case, David is the first generation that is able to enter into the tabernacle. We see that often when David's fleeing from Saul. Where does he run? Where's Samuel? Where's the tabernacle? He's always running to those places. God chose David, not because he was the strongest. Jesse had other sons that were better. And even when Samuel's going through and choosing them, he goes to the firstborn and God says, not that one. Second one, not that one. And the Lord tells Samuel, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. That was the problem with Saul. They wanted someone tall, dark, and handsome. And they got him. Someone who stood head and shoulders above everybody else. But his piety was the opposite. As tall as he was, his piety was the opposite. His love for the things of Christ was the opposite. Sure, he was small in his own eyes at the beginning, but that was just temporal smallness. That had nothing to do with his character. It had everything to do with his own self-image that he had. And yet God chooses David, this little strapling, who goes out to Goliath and destroys him because he had cursed the God of Israel. God chooses and is gracious in his decree of election. And so it is, beloved. You sit here this morning, not because of something great in you, but because of Christ in you. Because Christ has shed his love upon you. And because he has chosen you. Fourthly, the defending of the church in verse 5. By terrible things and righteousness, wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth, and of them that are far off upon the sea. God defends his church with terrible things. We look throughout Providence. There are four books that God reveals himself by. You have special revelation in the scriptures. Then of general revelation, you have creation, you have the light of nature, you have conscience and providence. You have four books. Providence is one of the books that people rarely turn into. And yet it's one of the books that we ought to frequent. To see how the Lord preserves the church throughout the ages. God's continuance and care for his church is an excellent three-volume work that you can get for your kids and read to them. It's written so that parents can read them to their children. To understand how the Lord defends his church with terrible things in his righteousness. How he saves them age throughout age throughout age. How it is that we sing in the Psalms that God said, Wherever Israel went, touch not mine anointed. Even in the midst of the church sinning, God did not allow them to be stamped out. C consider this. When the children of Israel 
are there in Canaan before they go down to Egypt. What do they do the two brothers do to Shechem? They abuse the sign of the covenant. And Jacob is fearful for his life. He says, you're going to make me hated among all the people. And yet, the Lord brings fear of himself upon all the people to not touch Jacob, despite the wickedness of Levi and his brother. God defends his church. We ought not use that as a reason to sin against the Lord. Rather, we ought to use that as encouragement to go out and do valiantly for the Lord. The Lord defends his church. And so, your minister may go out to the abortion mill and preach against there. You should be there with him, encouraging him. There may be a public psalm sing. You should be there. There may be the groomer story hour that happens. And your minister decides, you know what? We're going to read from Genesis 1 to chapter 19. We're going to have creation story hour. You should be there supporting him. Do valiantly for the Lord. The Lord defends his church. He protects us until he is done with us. And then he takes us home where the world cannot touch us. Do not fear him that can kill body, but rather fear him that is able to cast both body and soul into hell. The defending of the Lord is number five. Number four. Six. Number five. From verse six. His strength is manifested which by his strength setteth fast the mountains, being gritted with power. Many people have false gods. It may be wealth. It may be their sexuality. It may be uh, actual false idols. You go to an Indian palace, and what do they have? They have their false gods displayed before them. But how many of those false gods are able to deliver them in their troubles? Not one. When the ark is before Dagon, Dagon falls over. Dagon couldn't set himself back up again. The people have to prop him up. You perhaps saw some of the floods that were happening in South America. What do you see the people doing? They're going into their temples and grabbing their idols and carrying them on their shoulders so they don't get wet. Why can't your idol do that for you? Why can't the demon behind the idol carry the idol away? Because they're useless. They have no strength. And yet our Lord manifests his strength. This is a privilege to see. He's not a weak, flimsy God. Even Jesus Christ. He's not soft and effeminate and winsome. He is a hard man. He is a firm man. And so in Exodus 15.3, what do we learn about God? It says, he is a God of war. His name is the Lord. Men of war are not soft men in the kitchen. Men of war are men's men. God is a man of war. And he manifests his strength. Think of the angel of the Lord who is Christ, the Son. So the Son goes out and Moses tells the people of Israel that the angel of the Lord will go before you. Listen to everything that he says. Joshua on the banks of Jordan, sees a man with a sword in his hand and goes out to meet him and says, are you here for us or for our enemy? And what does he respond with? The son says to Joshua, nay, but I am for the Lord. I am the captain of the Lord's hosts. And all throughout 
the rest of the Old Testament, especially in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, you see the Lord of hosts pop up again and again and again. What's he doing? One man, 10,000 people killed in a night. From one angel, who is the Son of God. The captain of the Lord of hosts is able to do such magnificent things. It's a demonstration of his strength. Many of us would tire from war. We read of David's mighty men, and one of them fought so hard that the sword clave to his hand. Maybe you've been doing that before, where you're working out in your backyard, or you're doing something, you're hammering down, and the hammer's like clinging to your, your hand, and you have to peel back your fingers to get it off. How long is the person swinging around a sword for the sword to cleave to their hand? could be several hours. All throughout a night, the Lord of hosts goes through and just slaughters the wicked. It's a manifestation of his power, and he's not winded. When the sun tells Jacob, let go of me, because the day is breaking, it's not because the sun was getting tired. Rather, he's condescending to Jacob and saying, look, you're going to have to meet Esau. You are the one that's going to be winded. Let go of me. Because the day for you to meet your brothers here. He's condescending to him. The sun was not winded. And yet, Jacob in his tenacity gained the privilege. The strength of the Lord is manifest. And it's manifest over and over and over again. And again, if you do not make use of providence in that book, you should. Study history. See how the Lord has preserved his church. How he manifests his strength. Number six, which is in verse seven. Overriding and overruling all opponents. Which stilleth noise of the seas, the noise of the waves, and the tumult of the people. This is a privilege of the church of God. The Lord is able to overrule and override all opponents. Christ is in the boat. The disciples are scared to death in the Sea of Galilee. They're they're shipmen. They're men that have known the sea. And they're scared to death of the storm on the sea. Likely demonic in form. And the Lord rebukes. And the sea goes still. Why? Because he is able to overrule and override all opponents. And he tells that to Pilate. He tells Pilate. He tells others tells Peter, put up your sword. I could call for 10,000 angels from my father. And tells Pilate, the only reason why you're able to do anything is because my father gives you that power. The strength of Christ. His overriding, his overruling all opponents. Subduing us to himself and putting all of his and our enemies under his footstool. And we were enemies of Christ. And Christ, by his spirit, gave us a new heart and overruled us, overrode us so that we might have faith and take hold of him. That's a blessing, is it not, beloved? Now, this is a privilege that is given to the church. Number seven, verse eight, tokens of his witness, which still is the noise of the seas, the noise of the people and the tumult of the people. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou makest thy outgoings of the morning and the evening to rejoice. 
They that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid of thy tokens. The first time that we see this word for token is in Genesis 9, this Hebrew word for token. And that's in reference to the rainbow, the bow in the cloud that we see, which Christ already had seated on the right hand of God in Revelation, which Ezekiel sees in his first chapter. This is a token that the Lord leaves. And so that people far away, wherever they are in the world, it rains, the sun shines through, and the lights are refracted, and they see a rainbow. And God says, this is a token that I will not destroy the entire world with a flood again. That's also a token that he's going to destroy the entire world again with fire. And yet he preserves. And people are scared of the tokens. Thundering happens, and he's scared of those tokens. Perhaps you do this with your children. You can tell them, this is the awesome, mighty power of the Lord. Uh, Pagans are scared of storms, right? Martin Luther is trotting down in the middle of a storm, and the, the lightning and the thunder scares him so much that he prays to a demon to save him. St. Anne, I'll become a monk if you save me, right? The Lord uses that storm to scare him crazy. A token of his witness, and it draws Luther to faith. It puts him in a place where he can read the word of God. And the Lord sends his spirit and draws him to himself. So pagans will take the tokens of God and often deify them. God uses them for his people. Abraham received the token of circumcision in chapter 17, verse 11 of Genesis. Exodus 3.12, there's a token given to the children of Israel. 12.13, when the Egyptians are slaughtered in the Red Sea in baptism, submerged completely, God says that's the token to them to know that they will not come against them again. Many tokens given to us about the Lord. And we ought to note these things. They, they tie into the providence of God. Number eight. Number eight. We see in the other half of verse eight. Thou makest thou outgoings of the morning and the evening to rejoice. A joyful presence of the Lord. The joyful presence of the Lord is a privilege that the people of God have. That in the midst of storm there can be peace. And so that, this is one of the ironies. So the disciples are scared for their lives in the ship, but Christ is at peace. Same with the Apostle Paul before they're on Malta. He says, if you stay in the ship, you will have safety. You will be preserved. Jonah, the storm on the Mediterranean Sea. The men are all praying to their gods. Where's Jonah? Jonah's sleeping. He's at peace. He knows the Lord's not going to destroy him because he has a commission to go preach. And he's still at peace, though. There's a joyful presence of the Lord. That's what gives us peace. Why is the Sabbath day the Sabbath day? Is it simply because there's one day in seven and we're going to put it aside so that we get rest? No, the Sabbath is rest because of the joyful presence of the Lord. Why is it that the Lord gives that commandment? Six days you are to work and do all your labor, but the seventh, which is the eighth day now, the first day of the week, is a Sabbath unto the Lord, is a rest unto the Lord. It's because of his joyful presence. The Lord guards us and he hedges us and he says, 
the things that are lawful those other days, keep them out. It's time for a joyful presence of the Lord, a resting for the Lord. We see this, beloved, in the Psalms. One Psalm especially that we see it, that our little children know from a young age is Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overrunneth. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's the joyful presence of the Lord. Lastly, 9 to 13. We see the rich abundance of provision of the Lord. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided it. Thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly. Thou settest the furrows thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the spring thereof. Thou crownest the earth with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with the flocks. The valleys are also covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also sing. You see the rich abundance of God's provision for his people. All these verses that speak to the, what we are to pray in the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. That the Lord richly provides it. But notice what David says. He doesn't speak simply of the physical provision that we have, but also the spiritual provision that we have. What did he say? He says, Thou visited the earth and waterest it, Thou greatly enrich it with the river of God, which is full of water. You remember from our reading in John chapter 7, there's a statement that Jesus made in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. All the people are gathered together at the temple, and Jesus shouts out that if any man thirsts, let him come unto him, and he will spring forth rivers of water, bowels of water from him. Why did Jesus say that? Well, at the Feast of Tabernacles, it was customary that the priest would take some water, probably from the Pool of Siloam, standing up at the top of the platform of the the temple, and pour out the water. And everybody would be silent. Because they would be there watching and listening for the water to trickle down the steps. Because it was a type of the provision in the wilderness. Remember, Tabernacles, they're creating the makeshift tents to remind them of how the Lord provided for them in the wilderness. And so here is, as it were, water coming from the rock. It's coming from the throne of God. The river from the throne of God, which we sing about in the Psalms, which we see in Isaiah. And in the midst of that silence, Jesus cries out that he is that river of living water. It would have been momentous. It would have been a taboo, too. You don't make noise in the middle of that. And yet Jesus does. He cries out in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, I am that river. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me. And this is what David says. The river of God, which is full of water. 
is not referring to the Euphrates or the Tigris River that circumnavigated around the Garden of Eden. He's talking about the river of life from the throne of God that comes from Christ. He's talking about that pure river that is given to everyone that believes in him. Rich abundance of provision, not just of temporal things. God gives us temporal things to keep us going, but also of spiritual things, especially of spiritual things. Is given as privileges for the people of God. These are the things enumerated. Note, finally, that they are also enduring. David, in the psalm, he gives the psalm for them in commemoration of the feasts. The conclusion of one season, the conclusion of one end of year of the feasts, to go through the entire year again and sing the same psalm. To go through the entire year again and have the early rains and have the sheaf with the first fruits, to have the Passover and the week of unleavened bread. Seven weeks later, after the first fruits, to have the day of the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost again. And then four months of space of time where they're working diligently to gather again at the seventh month, not having to be there at the very beginning, but the trumpets blowing, and then the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And year after year after year, what do we read after the flood? Genesis chapter 8. After God had monumentally resurfaced the earth, it's likely that when Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth left the ark with their wives, it did not look the same to them. Any monuments that were stood were under dirt. Maybe someone were poking out dead bodies everywhere, stench. And yet, in the midst of all this, God says, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The Lord concludes his time with them with a poem. A poem about how he will be faithful in enduring and giving them these privileges. That while the earth is around, seed time and harvest will keep going, day and night. So the global warming alarmists goes right against Genesis 8.22. Eventually we'll be overpopulated and there'll be no food. What does God say? Seed time and harvest until the end of the world. The end of the world is not yet, so seed time and harvest will continue. It endures forever until the Lord returns. Again, Psalm 136, what does it say? His mercy endureth forever. The enduring promises, and even as we read these words that David has, you get that sense that David's not looking to one year. He's looking to year after year after year where the Lord would provide for his people. And even in the midst of their sin, in Jeremiah, writing lamentations after the death of the king and after the captivity begins, he says these words in Lamentations 3. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassion fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The faithfulness of the Lord that is enduring 
for the privileges of the people of God. Now you can be assured that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you will have those same privileges. That those privileges are not there just for you for today. What, for the next day and the next day, the next week as you gather for the next Sabbath day. That the Lord will have those there for you. And that is a wonderful thing, beloved. This is what the Lord says in Deuteronomy eleven fourteen that I will give you rain of your land in due season, the rain, first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. The Lord promises blessing to his people, the privileges of the people of God. They are enduring. But what does it mean when those privileges are restricted, when they're taken away? It's because we're under chastening, right? You think of Samuel. Samuel's living at the end of the period of the judges. And we're told at the opening of the book that the word of God was rare in those days. And there was no open vision. And yet, what do we have in America? We have church after church on every corner. How many of them preach the true gospel, though? And there's a day coming, beloved, when the word of God will become rare. Truly today, the word of God being preached without error is rare. The true gospel going forth is rare. And yet the Lord gives privileges to his people. And when those privileges are withheld, as we see like in Song of Solomon 5, where the husband withdraws himself, it's a chastening. It's a chastening that occurs to the church. And she ought to repent of such things. So hope as we see this psalm, Psalm 65, that David wrote, and hope that every Feast of Tabernacles, that as we tabernacle with the Lord on this Sabbath day, that we might remember that prayer ought to give way to praise, and that remember the privileges that God has given to his people. Let's stand and look to the Lord in prayer.